The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Now, is that person really committing suicide by withdrawing the treatment? Because I've tried to maintain that withdrawing the treatment can be the moral equivalent of not giving it in the first place, which is certainly permissible. But this person, I think he took a gun Oh, well, yeah. Because of years. But I, I don't understand that. How could he be a big burden to the, the wife without treatment, except the fact that he has to eat? And, and, I mean, I... I don't understand why, I mean, I don't believe, as you probably can imagine, I don't believe any suicide is legitimate, but I'm having trouble understanding why he, it's, a, it's a concern for money in this case. What, what page are we page Okay. Uh, second case, of, oh yes, I remember this. Richard Arthur is suffering a lengthy terminal illness that's draining his financial resources and re- re- reducing the size of his estate. Since he'll be dependent on the estate, she will be dependent as his means of support. Arthur decides to end his life by shooting himself. The motivation prompting him is, is noble. But, see, what he doesn't say here is what it is that's reducing the estate. My guess is that it's the treatment. Yeah, which is maybe hard, but uh, he says... Uh, that it's an altruistic suicide, but it's a suicide all the same. See, because then, I mean, there's no difference really between that and uh, relieving all kinds of things, you know. If you get discouraged, bang, you know, good way up. Or if you, uh, if you feel you're a burden to society, or you're a burden to other people, or you're, a, you know, it may not just be a financial burden, maybe all kinds of. But see, the only way to determine that you're terminally ill is it that in the judgment of the doctors you have between two to four weeks to live as you know using Pellegrino's definition and um, if that's the length of the term you're not going to be a burden for very long um, and uh, I don't see what what expenses involved and I don't I also don't think that we have enough knowledge of the uh, termination of it, to be to say 100% certain with 100% certainty, you're not going to survive longer. And even if we did, um, the the worth of the life is not dependent on how many days it might be lived and under what kind of circumstances and how expensive it might be or whatever. It's it's determined for other reasons. It's determined because you're in communion with God, and you're, you know, God has given life worth as something uh, for his creatures to uh, to live with responsibly. Um, so, I just don't see how it helps on the one hand, and even if it did, on the other hand, I think, I don't see how you have a right to do that with, with life. Yeah. Oh, and there are some that are actually dangerous. Some yeah. forms of Alzheimer's make you quite violent, but yeah. So I can, let's say I'm 
Oh, I understand very well. I, I just don't think it's morally possible because you're taking your own life and you're saying, I it will de decide when it's worth living and how other people are going to benefit from my life rather than letting God decide, you know. And um, it may be that you will want to do all kinds of things which are likely to make your stay on earth shorter than longer, uh, like not check into a nursing home or, you know, not give yourself extraordinary treatment or whatever, that, that might be so, but you still can't go from that to actually pulling the trigger on yourself or giving yourself a lethal overdose, a lethal dose, because that's the moral equivalent of somebody dying for another reason than... Um, than what God allows, you know, it's not, it's not easy sometimes to have, I mean, you know, people are burdens, you know, they really are. They are burdens for, for other parts of their lives as well than the terminal stages, you know. Like, um, you know, I know 30-year-olds who are tremendous burdens, 40-year-olds who are tremendous burdens. And, uh, you know, once you begin to open the door, you might just have a justification, why not just let them, why not kill them off, you know, or have them kill themselves off. Um, all of us feel like we're, we're burdens at some time or other, and uh, you, um, it would be tempting to, uh, to be able to control the thing so well that things aren't quite going well. And I know you're not saying that, you're saying you're giving a much darker picture, but, you know, it's the, it seems to me the moral equivalency of, of taking your own life when you want instead of letting God do it. Yeah, and maybe there are measures that can be taken to avoid that that we don't realize, you know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, my, my mother was in a nursing home for uh, a while. And uh, on, if you want, in one scenario, it was a burden and a tremendous financial drain. And, um, you know, they would have, rationally, you could argue that, well, would, why, don't you, why don't we just kill her off, you know, because um, she's unhappy. She used to say she, she couldn't wait to die, you know, she used to say it all the time. And, um, you know, why didn't we do that? Well, because we don't have the right to determine somebody's li lifespan or to define what their purpose is. Um, just because my mother didn't seem to have much of a purpose. Um, first of all, everyone has a purpose as a creature of God. And secondly, there are many ways which we sometimes don't realize in which people influence others. Um, you know, we found out after she died that she, she was a real delight to some of the nurses on that floor. You know, that's a purpose. If you'd asked mom, she would have been very cynical, saying, so what, you know. But she uh, was a real encouragement to some of those nurses, you know. and. Um, I think she was also an encouragement to some of the other patients, not because she, you know, went around preaching at them, but because she um, had moments of lucidity where she was kind of fun to be with, and they traded stories. And I mean, that doesn't sound like much, but that's what—that's the way God made the world: is for people to have some kind of fellowship and meaning. And then on the negative side, you don't want to push this too far, but the the suffering person in a terminal state or in a, in a state of, at the end of life is a dramatic and realistic reminder of the fall. 
which, without which we could become very callous and uh, hedonistic about, about life. You know, uh, as I say, this is not why God created or allowed for the possibility of evil, controls evil. But once evil is in the world, um, he does use it as, as a painful reminder of our fallen estate. And um, that can, uh, you know, that can be a, a hope of the resurrection. Flannery O'Connor, we were talking about this in, in the other course, the uh, varieties of apologetic methods. Flannery O'Connor, when she describes her philosophy as a Christian novelist, says that the reason she depicts so many fairly grotesque persons uh, is because she believes that it sets you up or sets you in position to understand grace better. Um, she may have a have exaggerated here, but there's a certain point to that, that when you understand the nature of evil, um, you then are in a, in a realistic posture and are able to open your hands to, to free grace. So um, it seems to me that whatever the circumstances that may seem to justify it, the Sixth Commandment prohibits murder because life has an inherent worth and even in the fall, even in the fallen state, that, that life can teach us many things despite the suffering and the problems and the pain. And, and so it, it just in no circumstance, as I understand things, justifies, um, justifies suicide. You know, and they always give spies uh, a lethal, a pill of arsenic or something, you know. And they say that if you're about to be caught, you know, put it under your tongue and and if you are caught, swallow it, or chew it. I, I guess you have to bite it first. Uh, and some of that is just to protect the information which could get out of you by torture. And some of it is because, um, you know, the, they imagine that the torture is worse than any, any, any death that you could have. And it's, it sounds wonderful, you know. <laughs> but it's just, um, it's just not the way life was set up. And... Um, and difficult as life is, we we do have to face it with God's strength um, and and uh, obey Him because He knows what's uh, what's what's good for us. And you know that can be that can sound harsh and cruel as it's put, but it's it. I think it's it's important not to fall into any pattern that where we ordain our lives under other than what than what than God's um, God's commands. What about His um, Wenberg's definition of um, of comatose, page 169. Is it wrong to keep the permanently unconscious organically alive? I had. Let me uh, ask you if you had trouble with this paragraph on page 171. He's talking about Robert Veach, um, who says that to treat a dead person as if he or she were alive is evil and that if you're treating a person who's comatose as alive, that's an evil. And then he says, what Veach has said can be given a theological translation. Indeed, if we understand that a divine image bearer is an individual capable, actually or potentially, of imaging God by engaging in acts of intellect, emotion, and will, and if we grant that it is this imaging which warrants a special respect, then when that imaging capacity is permanently lost, 
we should recognize that our manner of treating the individual should be adjusted accordingly. It is killing, if it is killing image bearers, that's wrong, Genesis 9, 6, and it is sustaining and supporting the life of image bearers that is required, then when there is no image bearer present, i.e., when the person is dead, to act as if there were one present is morally inappropriate. It's not that it's merely unnecessary, but that it is wrong to treat what is not an image bearer as if it were an image bearer is a failure to do what is required. And even if there was no way, even you were conscious of it, you are the image of God by virtue of creation. And um, it's, you don't lose that. Um, this is a similar argument to Bauma et al. where they talk about abortion. Um, the image of life, the image of God comes at a certain stage, uh, almost you're invested with it progressively, um, rather than Frame's view, which is that it's a, it's a, it's a permanent quality of the, of the human being. This is kind of the functional view. Yeah, the, according to Robert Veach, this person is basically dead, though breathing and, and, and whatever. And in the Bible, even the body is the image of God, you know, hands and feet. That sounds strange, but they are. Um, that's a that's a tough question about knowing the person's a Christian or not. Um, my my view on that is that we should basically not act in function as to whether the person is or isn't, or may or may not be a Christian. At least for those big decisions. Of course, we we have a, a different response to that person as we comfort them, as we accompany their dying if they're a Christian than if they're not a Christian, I'm sure of that, but it seems to me that um, though we have some assurance that a person is not a Christian, that still is not a justification for preserving a vegetative state longer than normal because of the hope, a desperate hope that they'll wake up and you can preach the gospel to them. Um, seems to me there is a, uh, a divinely ordained cycle or time or, uh, or span of life within which you have opportunities to decide and that to expand that or push it or open it up, prolong it uh, on your own terms for, for, for a kind of desperate purpose is, um, is again... Uh, taking, could be taking the place of God. The same goes for people on death row. Um, many Christians who object to capital punishment do so on the basis that people on death row uh, will have no more opportunity to decide. And, um, however, um, a, a number of interesting studies have been made which, which show that, um, in fact, there's a higher percentage of believers on death row than in, um, in the life imprisonment cells. And uh, it's hard to guess all that's involved there, but one of the things might very well be that when you're up against death, you, you, uh, you decide. Now, that doesn't justify capital punishment or not, of course, but... Um, it was all on death row. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. It is, yeah, that's right. Good point. Um, but um, we have to be, I think we have to be very careful not to use um, 
our feelings about a person's need for salvation as an ethical standard, uh, either in civilly or, or morally, um, when, uh, when so many other things are involved. Um, uh, and I think you have to make the decision um, almost without taking that into account. Um, that's very different from how to treat a person who is dying, who has some sort of awareness. Um, you may very well want to speak the words of, of the gospel to the person who doesn't know Christ at the last moment. I mean, that might be very appropriate to do. See, that's, I think that was exactly right, um, because you didn't use tr treatment for three or four years. You used it for a reasonable length of time, and the thing you hoped for is that she recovered, and there's, I've forgotten the scale of this, but if, you know, if the coma lasts a day, you have X chance of recovery, two days, X chance, and then it goes down pretty dramatically after about the third or fourth day. But there's always some chance. Um, but that's very different, I think, from um, going to extraordinary m means in the name of, you know, the hope of conversion. I mean, my dad had a very, very serious heart attack about three years ago or maybe four years ago. And, uh, I mean, he came within a millimeter of death. It was just really close. And uh, a lot of things happened, and he recovered. Did he repent and become a Christian? No. And we, we all said, see, Dad, you know, just hard, you know, didn't, uh, you know, people do this. They have heart attacks, and then they recover, or they don't, you know. Um, so a person may or may not be scared into it. Um, that, too, is a, is a factor to take into account. Not everybody responds positively. You, you do want as many opportunities as possible to preach the gospel, but it's, it's not as if um, you have a better chance after a person's been through something really dangerous, you know. It's, you, you would think you, it, it would, but it, it doesn't always. Sometimes it does, like a case if you're a woman there, and sometimes it, it, uh, it doesn't. When I was um, in home missions work in uh, New Hope, uh, one of the men that I visited uh, was a, uh, about, he's about 85 years old, and, or maybe 80, and he, um, he had a new lease on life. He was a complete humanist. And uh, he had ditched his first wife, married this young thing, bought up some property in New Hope, making a lot of money, and uh, just everything was going great. He, he, he had just come back from a trip around the world for his honeymoon, and... Um, and all of a sudden, he had a stroke. And he was in the hospital, and he was completely paralyzed on one side. And uh, he, could sp he could speak with, with some difficulty, because he could speak, but he couldn't move half of his body. And he was absolutely furious at God, in whom he didn't believe. He was livid. Um, and, uh, you know, I said all kinds of things. I probably said, I was a young, pretty young guy then, and I probably said some wrong things. but. Um, you know, it, what you would hope for is this, this would lead him to repentance. Now I see that I can't just, you know, charge around and, at 80 years old and expect that things are always going to go well. God is giving me a little time, a little patience. You know, he could have killed me right off, but, but he, he's giving me time. Not at all. He was just, he died a furious man. I, I saw him die. And, um, boy, it's a scary thing, you know, but... Uh, it just goes to show that not everybody takes the warning. Um, 
of the close call or, 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 or whatever. So you, I think it's, it's important to think about where the, where the person is, but I don't think you want to base your, your decisions of, of, of terminal choices on that factor um, because the scenarios are so varied and you need something more objective and more, more uh, classic. That withholding and withdrawing are, 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 are morally equivalent. And he talks about the Quinlan case. And then um, he says um, on page 165, they appear to be morally equivalent. Circumstances that render the one dispensable render the other dispensable as well. Yet many of us are more hesitant about withdrawing artificial feeding from an individual in a persistent vegetative state, PBS, than about withdrawing a ventilator from an individual suffering from total brain death. Okay. Uh, even should we judge chances of recovery to be equally non-existent. But why is this? Perhaps we feel that removing artificial feeding is tantamount to starving an individual to death, and that this is unacceptable in, as much, in, in much the same way as intentionally administering a lethal dose of a drug is accept unacceptable. Of course, we could, to take matters one unpleasant step further, bury the still breathing, but irreversibly comatose individual. This would strike us as ghoulish and shock the sensibilities of most people, but why do we have these feelings? If the individual is truly dead, dead in the most significant sense of the term, why, should, why would we have scruples about any of these practices? Can't we stop feeding the dead? Can't we bury them? Yet clearly we do have such scruples. Can we justify them, or are they merely irrational reactions to what looks alive, but in fact has lost all value? And what's, what is the answer to that? Is there a difference between withdrawing artificial feeding and withdrawing a ventilator? Is withdrawing the artificial feeding the same thing as burying someone alive and, or, not, or starving them to death? In the, in the Cruzan case, you, you seem to have had something like that. You know, they took the tube out. She lasted for a while, actually. And I think, I can't remember, was she... Was she fed? She was given to drink, wasn't she? Through the mouth, but she, she couldn't receive food or something like that. Yeah, right. What, when you withdraw a, a feeding tube, most do, is the death of the people in a permanently vegetative state, in fact, starvation? Is that, is that what happens? Yeah. Dehydration? Yeah. So, so, and people are, who are in a coma, if you don't initiate uh, artificial feeding, also can die of, of starvation, dehydration? Is that, yeah. And comfort is the criterion. Right. It, but, but you just have to look at other things. Um, he, um... We, we would do that with animals. Oh, sure. Without scruple, because they're not... Um, the image of God, we're not commanded not to thou shalt not murder animals. There's no command like that. Yeah. People put their, you know, their, their dogs to sleep. And, you know. But um, we, we can't do that with human beings. Um, he says, um, in concluding, in seeking to determine the correct level of treatment for the permanently unconscious, 
we should, I suggest, walk a middle course. I'm inclined to conclude that in such cases it would be appropriate, this is page 167 on the bottom, with family concurrence to remove a ventilator and to, st and to stop both artificial feeding and the intake of liquids. When sustenance is withdrawn, the death of the body will follow shortly and will, of course, be painless since the individual is unconscious. I would, however, be more reluctant to endorse the use of positive means to end biological human life. And why the drawing of the line at this particular point? Because I suggest, apart from the possibility that consciousness will be regained, a possibility that has been excluded for purposes of present discussion, there's no benefit that artificial feeding can secure for the patient. The cost of long-term care for the individual, therefore, represents an expenditure for which there's no compensating benefits. Um, so he says that you can take away both ventilator and the tube. For one thing, a person doesn't suffer. I guess we, we suppose that's true. We, we don't know for sure. I mean, who can get inside the head of somebody who's in coma? But I, I suppose you can measure it. Uh, but he would not, uh, he would not lethally a administer so something. Um, um, one thing we didn't um, cover at all um, is the legal or civil legislation. What should the relation be between civil legislation and, you know, practice? Um, do we, do we think that the law should regulate every part of, of this, or should some latitude be left for families and for doctors and so forth? Um, we know that as it is, the law is fairly strict about um, euthanasia, but that in practice all kinds of exceptions are made um, because everybody agrees. Um, is that good or bad? Um, um, what, how, 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 uh, how specific should the civil law be? Now, we, we are going to get into the living will kind of thing, and you, you should know that 48 of the 50 states have, a, uh, have made some part of a living will a legally uh, acceptable document. That doesn't mean that it has to be followed or anything like that, but um, uh, there, there is the, uh, the patient right to self-determination has some legal status in, in 48 of the 50 states right now. Pennsylvania is about to vote on it uh, soon. Um, but uh, that issue aside, should the civil law regulate, and if so, how strongly, um, what goes on in, in the... Uh, in, in, you know, in the hospital rooms and the nursing homes and so on. Either you agree with th this book or you don't have a problem with the way it is now, or... Do, do you think that... Um, all right, let me give you a case here from... Uh, all right, euthanasia. Uh, on page 197 and 198, um, euthanasia invoked by substituted judgment. Um, the doctrine of substituted judgment is currently recognized legal mechanism whereby an incompetent person, though unable to make a decision to have life-prolonging treatment discontinued, may nevertheless have his needs 
and hypothetical de desires recognized and acted on. So it's asked, what decision would this in incompetent person make were he, in fact, competent? All right. In this regard, consider the case of Earl N. Spring, a gentleman in his late 70s who was suffering from a kidney disease requiring that he undergo um, hemodialysis. This necessitated that Mr. Spring, who was also suffering from chronic organic brain syndrome, which senility, and had been declared legally incompetent, be placed on a dialysis machine three days a week for five hours a day. With continued treatment, Mr. Spring might live for, th for years. Without it, he would die in a fairly short time. Mr. Spring's wife and son sought court authorization to discontinue treatment. The court-appointed guardian for Mr. Spring opposed cessation of treatment, but the judge nevertheless sided with the family and authorized its discontinuance. The guardian appealed this decision to the Massachusetts Appeals Court, but without success. Here, the earlier decision to discontinue treatment uh, was upheld, and the doctrine of substituted judgment was reaffirmed. Judge Christopher Armstrong, who rendered this decision, pointed to eight factors which, he argued, supported the contention that Mr. Spring, were he competent, would choose to have dialysis treatment terminated. They're worth noting, and here they are. One, the fact that Mr. Spring had led an active, robust, independent life. Two, the fact that he had fallen into a pitiable state of physical dependence and mental, mental incapacity. Three, the fact that no improvement can be expected in his physical or mental condition, but only further deterioration. Four, the fact that dialysis treatments exact a significant toll in terms of frequency and duration of treatments and uncomfortable side effects. Five, the fact that the ward has no understanding of the nature and purpose of, the, of his treatments and cannot cooperate and does not reliably acquiesce to the administration. Six, the fact that his wife and son with whom the ward had and has a very close relationship feel it would be his wish not to continue with the dialysis, and seven, the fact that it's their wish that dialysis not be administered and, administered, and eight, the fact that the attending physician recommends against the continued treatment. Um, now, um, he, Wenberg, goes on to say, well, what, how do we, what are the implications of, of this kind of decision? Is the doctrine of substituted judgment a good thing, a bad thing? A dangerous thing? Is it lead down the slippery slope? Or is it something that we, um, you know, um, it's natural? Who else is going to decide? Kind of Wenberg um, warns against what would happen in a world where euthanasia were legalized uh, to the conclusion that Mr. Spring would want active assistance in terminating his life. Um, this is the point you, you raise. Um, but he says that that's no reason not to have the, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of substitution. Um, you, um, you just can't cross the line to active, even though you do everything you can in passive to, uh, to make it possible for a person to live with dignity and therefore um, to die at the appropriate time and not in some later time. And I think, you know, we're going to be faced with this increasingly because the more techn technology enables us to preserve life, 
um, the more we're going to wonder what it is we're preserving, and the more we're going to have decisions to make about, you know, what to do. But I, I, I do think ambigu ambiguities, though they will be, this basic distinction between active and passive, or to use John Frame's terms, between euthanasia and um, burdensome stewardship and so on, um, is the basic guide for us to get at, to, to be conformed to the Sixth Commandment. Okay? Next week I'll bring in a couple of documents for us to, uh, to look over, and we will discuss um, the living will, and um, you will bring in your paper project if you haven't done that already, please. It's probably something we all should think about doing. The latest what? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, you see, that, um, I must say that bothers me. I, I, I know that it was all for the most wonderful reasons and all, but...